1 John chapter number 1, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and tell you that this is a little bit outside of what I'm familiar with, uh, not the Word of God anyway, anyway I hope not, but uh, the way that I'm going to try to preach to you tonight. But I, I want to do something, God's laid this on my heart, I want to help you this evening in understanding the Word of God, and uh, I don't want to study for you, I want to help you study. And I want to give you some things that I believe will help you do that. First John chapter number 1, and uh, we're going to read the entire first chapter and then the first two verses of chapter number 2. The Bible says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would illuminate Your Word tonight. Give me the words that I need to speak, Lord. I pray that You'd bless everything that will take place. Make these thoughts clear, Lord, and help them to have impact and influence in our lives and our minds. We're trusting the Holy Spirit to teach us these things tonight. So help us to be surrendered to Him as He works. Move in each heart, Lord, in a particular and practical way and draw us into a closer fellowship with You. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Calvary. We thank You for Your Son and His precious blood. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As you read through the book of 1 John, you'll be struck by the familiarity of this book. This is a very personal book of the Word of God. Uh, Sin is dealt with in a family sense. The world is not seen as something that's within, that has permeated or corrupted the people to whom John is writing this, but is seen as people that are without, people that are uh, alienated from this group of people that John is writing to. Now, I told you that I wanted to give you some things to help you understand the book of 1 John. I told my wife on the way in that I I was very seriously praying about preaching the entire book of 1 John. Now, some of you, you just had a heart attack when I said that uh, in one sermon. But what I mean by that is simply reading through 
and giving the understanding and sense of what each verse is saying. Not necessarily expounding on it, but just explaining it. And by the way, this was the type of preaching that was done throughout the Old Testament in Israel. That's what the Bible says in the book of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah uh, stood up and uh, read, or Ezra rather, stood up and read the Word of God and explained the meaning to those that were there and those that were listening. I believe there's some benefit in that. As you read the book of 1 John, it has such lofty themes as the idea that God is light and God is love, the idea of the security of the believer, assurance of salvation, of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, it's easy sometimes to not see this book for what it truly is. You have to understand when John wrote this, John is an old man. Many, many years have passed since Christ has walked this earth, since He has died and been buried and rose again in power and in glory, since He has ascended into heaven. In fact, we believe that this letter was probably written quite a while even after the Apostle Paul has died. John is the last of the apostles that is left. And when John writes this letter, he's doing it to combat heretical doctrine, apostate doctrine. Could I say to you today that bad doctrine is as big a problem today in the church as it has ever been? Part of the responsibility of a pastor and also of teachers in a church is to expose, to deal with uh, bad doctrine, to run it and root it out of a body of believers. We need to know what we believe, we need to know why we believe it, and we need to know where that God's Word says and explains it. Uh, That's the foundation for our believing it. And as you read through the New Testament epistles, you'll find that the vast majority of them deal with bad doctrine. There was an occasion for their writing. They weren't just writing just to write. God didn't just give us those things just to give us pretty words on a page to make us feel good. But they were given because a certain doctrine had found its way into the church and God was dealing with that doctrine in a particular way. We're getting ready to study through the book of Galatians. And I think probably in the book of Galatians, more than any other book in the Bible, it's just abundantly clear what bad doctrine that Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with the bad doctrine of legalism. Do you know, and I'm going to try not to preach on Galatians tonight, I know I'm here in 1 John, but do you know that a lot of what people call legalism today is nothing more than uh, convictions and standards? Every time that a person says you ought to look different, dress different, talk different, act different, there's somebody that comes along that wants to say, well, you're a legalist. No, that's not legalism. Legalism is the attributing of our good works, our righteousness, uh, to our salvation position. It is the claim that we can, through our own good works, merit righteousness with God. Having standards is not legalism. Having standards is biblical. Uh, Really, if we were to talk about true legalism, we could more uh, show that as being akin to the Church of Christ and Church of God movement, the charismatic movement that tries to lump in baptism with salvation. The idea that if you get dunked, or the idea that if you live righteously, or the idea that if you go to church, or uh, another good example is the Roman Catholic Church. If you join their church, if you go through their sacraments, they claim that righteousness has been imputed to you. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it's not by works of our righteousness, which we have done, but by His own mercy that He has saved us. 
There's nothing we can do to add to the cross of Calvary, nothing we can do to take away from the cross of Calvary. And so that's really what legalism is, and that's what Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. There was a group of people that had come along. I told you I wasn't going to preach on Galatians, but here I am. There was a group of people, Judaizers, uh, Old Testament uh, Jews, or people that had uh, adhered to the law that had come along and told a group of Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised and keep the law to be in good standing with God. And Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Uh, he says, you, uh, you have started in grace. You've ran in grace. Why would you think if you've started in grace that you'd finish in law? So Paul is dealing with a doctrinal heresy. And the same thing we could go through the book of First Thessalonians. The church at Thessalonica had a group of people claiming that the resurrection had already taken place and was past. And Paul deals with that bad doctrine. And on and on we could go. And in 1 John, there was a group of people that were infecting the church at that time. And I'm going to give you a few terms that you're going to need to remember. So please try and listen carefully. Uh, There was a movement at this time in the New Testament church, really in society at large, that was known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Let me say it again so it really soaks in. Gnosticism. Now, we have a term today that some people attribute to themselves uh, that's kind of akin to that, and it's the term agnostic. How many of you have ever heard someone use the term agnostic before? Well, when you add A to something, it usually negates whatever it is. For instance, if someone is amoral, it means that they have no morals. Or uh, if someone is an atheist, it means they are the opposite of a theist, meaning someone that believes in a deity. An atheist says, I do not believe in a deity. Well, an agnostic is someone that claims to have no knowledge of whether there's a God or not. If you were to ask an agnostic, do you believe in God? They would say, well, I just don't know. If you were to say, do you believe there's not a God? They'd say, no, that's not what I'm saying. If you were to say, do you believe there is a God? They'd say, no, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, An agnostic would claim that they don't know and don't care whether God exists. And so an agnostic is someone who claims to have no knowledge. Gnostics in the first century were a group of people that claimed to have advanced knowledge. They claimed to have a revelation of knowledge that God had not heretofore given. And this group of people that claimed to have this higher knowledge were going to these bodies, and particularly this uh, local body that John is writing to, and claiming them that they needed to know more than what they knew in the gospel of Christ. That they needed to follow them, and they would impart to them some new knowledge, some new thing. Doesn't that just sound like the world today? The next newest and greatest and best. There's always someone coming out with a best-selling book, always some new religion that's starting. Gnosticism is alive and well today. Well, this idea of Gnosticism, this was a very broad group of people. And there's a lot of different groups that fell into that. But the group that John is writing about uh, and writing to or writing to combat against was a group that was called Docetism. Can I say that again? Docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism. Now, this group of, uh, I guess, docetics would be what they'd be called. I don't know. I thought that was when you had two ticks on you instead of one tick on you. But these docetics were a group of people that essentially believed that everything that was of temporal matter, in other words, something you can touch, everything that was temporal, everything that was physical, if you wish, was inherently evil. They believed that everything that was of a spiritual sense was inherently or intrinsically good. Now, some of you are saying, well, preacher, that don't sound too bad. But it causes a few problems. 
We understand that the flesh is evil and the flesh is wicked, our flesh, because it's sinful. But if you were to adhere to this idea that everything that's physical or tangible is bad and everything that's spiritual is good, then you would have to say that the incarnate Christ is bad and that the spiritual Satan is good. You see, if you follow that line of thinking, you have to completely dismiss, for one thing, the creation according to the biblical account. Because the Bible teaches that God spoke. God said, let there be, and there was. And the things that He created are physical things. I mean, they're physical properties. He created the earth and all that is therein. He created the sea. He created land animals, water animals, and so on and so forth. And they had to reject not only the creation, but they had to reject the incarnation. The idea that God would dwell amongst us in flesh. You know, the Bible teaches that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 14, 1 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews uh, that He was made a little lower than the angels, that it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. And the book of Galatians teaches us that when the fullness of time was come, uh, that uh, Jesus Christ, that God, the Son of God, was born in due time, born of a woman, born under the law. So they had to reject these ideals. And there were three main doctrines that John is dealing with. And I want you to listen carefully. One of them is this idea that they had. They believed that Jesus and Christ were two separate individuals. They believed that Jesus was a human being, but that Christ was a deistic or a divine spirit that dwelt on him when he was baptized, and that this spirit uh, left him or departed from him before he died on the cross of Calvary. You ever wonder why it is that John says that uh, anyone that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God? Because this group of individuals didn't believe that Jesus and Christ were one and the same. They believed that Jesus was one and Christ was a spirit that had merely descended upon him that Jesus Christ was not one and the same individual. Can I say to you tonight that Christ is a title, but it's a title that belongs to Jesus. Uh, you know, we, we might use that same kind of idea uh, today. If you were to talk about the president and to talk about Barack Obama, you wouldn't be talking, sadly, about two different individuals. You'd be talking about the same person. It's a title, but it's a title that belongs to Jesus Christ. And then there's another thing that John was trying to combat, and that was this idea of advanced revelation, this idea that they knew something that no one else knew. There was a third doctrine that he was combating, and these are important for you to understand. They'll help you as you study First John. Stuff that never made sense to you before will make sense to you when you understand these things. They believed that they had a, attained a higher morality that was above and exempt from sin. They didn't necessarily believe they didn't do the same things that another person would do that we would call sin. But to them, when they did it, it wasn't sin because they had attained a higher moral moral superiority. Boy, don't that sound like today? You'll hear people say all the time, well, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. And I've even heard Christians say sometimes, well, that may be your conviction, but it's not my conviction. Well, listen, if we've got biblical convictions, then they're biblical. Now, if we have uh, convictions based on tradition or nonsense or foolishness or the expectation of others around us, we might be able to say that. But if our convictions are biblical convictions, then we have no ground to sit there and say, well, that's good for you, but not for me. 
And surely in society today, you've heard people say uh, certain things like saying, well, it may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. Or, uh, for instance, this, I just don't see it that way. You see, this bad doctrine's alive today, and it's alive in the church today. Even amongst these ideas of... Can I say that I am totally opposed to denominationalism of every kind? I am absolutely... Some of you are saying, well, you're a Baptist preacher. That's a denom... No, I'm an independent Baptist. You say, what's the difference? By saying independent, I mean that I have absolutely no affiliation or connection with any other church other than Wall Ridge Baptist Church. We're not yoked up to anybody other than Jesus Christ. He is the head. He is the authority. I am absolutely against denominationalism of every kind. And even the idea of denominationalism today, the idea of, well, they worship that way, but we worship this way. Well, who's worshiping God's way? That's the question. Are we doing this in a biblical way? I mean, the Bible's supposed to be our only rule for faith and practice. That's what we believe. And so if we're not doing it biblically, we're doing it contrary to the only rule that we have. So armed with these ideas, I want us to just take a moment and go. I'm probably not going to tell you anything that is astounding, but I hope I can help you understand what John is saying. He begins by saying, that which was from the beginning. Now, I want to pause there and talk about that word beginning. John deals with three different beginnings in his writings, both in the Gospel of John and uh, in the Epistles of John and then in the book of Revelation. And most familiar, or the Bible deals with three different beginnings, the beginning of creation, the beginning before creation, and then this beginning. Uh, the Bible says in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning uh, God created. And we know that's the first thing that ever took place in this world, the first action that ever happened in this realm was God created. We know that John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That was the state before the beginning ever happened. In other words, before anything else ever was, the Word of God was. This is not a new thing when we talk about Jesus Christ and talk about the Word of God. He's always been, and He's always been the Son of God. But the beginning that John is talking about here, and I believe if you read it in context, you understand it clearly. John is not talking about the beginning of the world. He's not talking about the beginning before the world. He's talking the, about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he says that which was from the beginning, he's speaking of a twofold thing. For one, he's speaking of the gospel, and that's significant. But I believe also that he's speaking of the Son of God, and that's significant as well. You say, how can he be speaking of both, preacher? Because he calls it the word of life. So we know he's talking about literal words or the Word of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we know by what he's saying and the definitions that he gives or the actions that he describes that he's also talking about the Son of God. Now you say, why is this significant, preacher? Why does this matter? Because you have to remember who John's writing to combat against. He's trying to combat against a group of people that are saying, we have new knowledge. We have new revelation. We're learning something new. John says, I've not got anything new for you but I've got that which was from the beginning. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, that's a physical uh, action, which we have seen with our eyes, that's a physical action, which we have looked upon, and I'll say a word about that in a moment, and our hands have handled of the word of life. What was another bad doctrine John was battling against? This idea that Jesus and Christ were two separate individuals. The idea that Christ was some sort of spirit or phantom that merely rested upon Jesus. John saying, no, he wasn't a spirit or a phantom. We've handled him. 
We've seen Him. We've heard Him. And He uses this terminology. He says, we've looked upon Him. You say, what's the difference between uh, saying we've seen it with our eyes and we've looked upon it? Well, have you ever uh, at any time, uh, you've been uh, walking down the street or maybe you was driving or walking through a parking lot and all of a sudden you hear that sound, that you hear a car coming by and just as quick as you can turn, it goes, you saw it. But describe it. You didn't look upon it. You just saw it. John's saying we saw it with our eyes. But then he goes a step further and he says, and don't think we're mistaken because we looked upon it. We spent time with him. In other words, we're not just casual passerbys to this person, Jesus Christ. We were intimate friends with Him. We saw Him. We knew Him. Could I say to you that it's not settled everywhere that Jesus Christ was incarnate and was the Son of God. That's not settled in all churches and in all theological circles. I think sometimes we live in a bubble, you know. We go to our church. We know what our church believes. Uh, if you're like me, I don't. I mean, I don't hardly ever turn on a TV preacher, or, or if I do, I usually turn it right back off. Uh, you know, I go to revivals and things, but I'm going to confess to you, I go to revivals where I know what I'm going to hear. And it's easy sometimes to forget that there's a whole vast world out there that doesn't believe like we do in these four walls. It's not settled everywhere in everyone's mind that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. But can I remind you that in the Word of God, in the mind of God, and in the true annals of history, it's absolutely settled that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh and that He's the Son of God. John goes a little further. Look what he says. Now remember, this group of of individuals, these Gnostics, were claiming that they had eternal life because they knew something that this body of believers didn't. John says, for the life was manifested. By the way, that word manifest means to be brought into the light. Uh, That word manifest does not mean to be brought into existence. It means to be brought into the light. You say, why is that important, preacher? Because Jesus Christ, before He was ever manifest in the flesh, already existed. And this word light is going to factor heavily in the book of 1 John. He says, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. You say, preacher, why does he use that kind of language? Let me explain why. Put yourself in the shoes of this group of believers. This is late in John's life. John outlived everyone. Christ made that prophecy concerning him in the book of John, I believe it was chapter 21, when he said about John uh, that he would uh, grow to an old age. And so John is at the uh, nearing the end of his life, and there's no one left. And you can imagine as this group of Gnostics claims that they have new revelation, that they know things that no one else knows. And by the way, the Gnostics were not claiming to be opponents of Jesus Christ. Understand that it's not the wolves we have to watch out for in the church. It's the wolves in sheep's clothing. It's not those. I mean, listen, I mean, the camps are drawn. I mean, I promise you. Listen, I'm not. Nobody's going to convert me to being a Roman Catholic. I've been saved. I know the truth. I've read the word of God. That is clearly defined to me. But it's the truth that is it's the lie that's closest to the truth. That's the most dangerous. And so they were not claiming to be opponents of Jesus Christ. They were claiming to be followers of Him that had some sort of advanced revelation. Well, where would you go to ask these questions? We sit here 2,000 years later 
in Western Christianity with a King James Bible setting before us. We know the truth. It's established. It's right there before us. But place yourself in the shoes of this little body of believers. How do they know what is true? They don't have a canonized Bible in front of them. Who would they ask the truth about these things? And I can imagine one of these church folks saying, well, you know, there's still old brother John. And he's alive. And he walked with the Lord. He's the one we should ask. John's testimony would have borne more weight than almost anyone else. And in fact, some of you may have know the, know the name Polycarp. Polycarp was a uh, pastor uh, in the early church. Polycarp, Polycarp was also a martyr. If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, then uh, you've read the story of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was uh, sentenced to be burned at the stake for his testimony for Jesus Christ. Wonderful thing happened, though. They took Polycarp, they tied him uh, to the post, they piled the wood around him, uh, they lit it on fire, but Polycarp just would not burn. And he kept standing there, uh, or I guess just hanging there, singing praises unto God and testifying of the saving grace of God. So they said, this isn't going to work. It was miraculous. So they decided, we'll spear him to death. So they took spears and they began to stab Polycarp. You say, I don't believe that, preacher. That's a fairy tale. Take it up with John Fox. This is, this is historical fact. They began to stab him and his blood ran out and quenched the flames that were flaming around him. And still he kept testifying. It took hours for Polycarp to die. Polycarp himself, along with a lot of other... And I hate the term church fathers. I mean, the Bible says call them no man father, but that's what we call them, that's what we're familiar with. Uh, pastors, leaders in the church uh, at this time had direct contact with the Apostle John. They had spoken with him. He was the authority that they went to because he was the last apostle that was alive. And so when John is writing these things, understand, this is first-hand testimony. This is a first-hand witness. John is saying, I'm not talking about something I don't know about. They claim that Jesus Christ was not in the flesh. But hey, I hugged his neck. I kissed his cheek. I, I knelt down onto his bosom. I heard the heartbeat of God. He lived and walked amongst us. So John says this life was manifest. We saw it. And it's this life, John says, that I declare unto you. It's this Christ that I'm proclaiming unto you. Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. That word fellowship is important. He says, And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Now John says, We're, we're declaring to you things that we've seen and heard. And the message that I'm about to give to you, I'm giving it to you so that you can have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with Jesus Christ and with the Father. You know, there's a lot of discussion today about who we should have fellowship with. And uh, I'll admit there's some people on both sides of it. I mean, there's some people, if you don't tie your tie with the same knot that they tie it, they don't even want to sit at a table with you. And then there's other people that want us to all sit around campfire, hold hands, sing kumbaya, and every man sing it to his own God. And there's extremes at both sides of it. But could I say to you that the Word of God, the person, purity, deity of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace, these things are fundamental to us. And there's others I could name. John says, if you want to have this fellowship that we have, you're going to have to believe these things. You're going to have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. But I believe this fellowship is not only a fellowship in the sense of communion uh, of our own volition that we choose to have fellowship, but I believe there's a spiritual fellowship that John is talking about. And I believe what he's saying is, listen, that group of Gnostics, that group of intellectually superior, quote-unquote, people, those people that, you know, they, they used to be a Christian and now they know so much better. That group of people, John says, you don't want to have fellowship with them. 
That group that don't want you, don't worry about them. But if you want to have fellowship with us, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. He also denotes that this belief, this gospel that he is claiming in this person of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our fellowship with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He says in verse 4 that this fellowship is the basis of our joy. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. I love reading what John wrote because John always told you why he was writing it. If you read the Gospel of John, you know what he says at the end? He says, these things have I written unto you uh, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. The Gospel of John is written to sinners that they may come to know Christ. And the book of 1 John is written to us, and there are several reasons John wrote it. And one of them is found in verse 4. Uh, John says, I don't want you to be persecuted and vexed by this bad doctrine. I want you to have joy in what you know about the Lord. He goes on later in chapter number 5, and he says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We can know that we're saved. We can absolutely 100% for sure know that we're saved. We don't know it by our feeling. We don't know it by the testimony of another person. We don't know it by some kind of supernatural experience. We know it by what the Word of God teaches us. That's the foundation. Our feelings, I mean, hey, listen, our feelings change. And if you're of the female persuasion, yours probably changes more than some of us, amen? (laughs) I'll, I'll get in a fight over that. We all have feelings, and our feelings change constantly, but the Word of God never changes. Our memories sometimes change. We may remember it this way, we may remember it that way, but the Word of God never changes. It's always sure, it's always true. So this is the message that He gives to us. Verse 5, this then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you. By the way, uh, there's something to be said for a witness. A witness. John says, I saw it, now I'm passing it to you. This is not something I fabricated. And he gives us a few things. He says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. This is important to understand. There's a lot of different ways that light can be interpreted in the Word of God. It can be interpreted as revelation and illumination. But I don't believe that's what's being spoken of here. Because we're never taught in the Word of God that the idea of illumination or revelation is an attribute of God or or part of His essence. I believe the light that's being spoken of here is God's holiness and purity. What John is saying is that God is absolutely pure. He's absolutely holy. He's absolutely righteous. And when he says, and in him is no darkness at all, I think what he's saying is in him is no sin at all. He is absolutely righteous. Listen, that's a doctrine that today is not necessarily... I mean, everybody believes it on paper. But then when you see the way people live and they claim that God's okay with it, their life doesn't measure up to their claim. I mean, you get people all the time that believe that, you know, they'll say, well, I'm a Christian, and they'll go out and they'll live just like the world. I mean, they'll commit every sin, they'll do every wrong, they'll never be in the house of God, they'll do th- and then they'll say, but God's okay with that. God condones that. Well, if God condones that, you don't believe in a very holy God. Let me tell you something. I sin, I mess up, I do wrong. And when I do, I don't think God's okay with it. Because my sin or my unrighteousness or what I think about it or what I hope about it or what I expect out of God doesn't change Him one bit. He is absolutely pure and holy. Holiness is part of the essence of God. Meaning it's not just what He does, it's who He is. It can't be changed, it can't be altered. If it was altered, He wouldn't be God anymore. So this is the premise and foundation. That's pretty dismal, you know. Uh, Because you and I, we both know that we are darkness. We are sin. We are unrighteousness. And so John says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness... 
We lie and do not the truth. Understand, John, when he speaks of this, is speaking as an onlooker. He's saying we can say that we have fellowship, but if we choose to walk in our sin, then we don't really have fellowship with God. That's strong language. And we need to understand as we read this that there's a big difference between relationship and fellowship, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But don't think for one minute that you're in communion with God when you're living in sin. You may still be in union with God, but you're not in communion with God when you're living in sin. But I believe John's not just talking about believers. He's going to talk about them in a second. But remember, he's battling these Gnostics that were claiming, well, I can sin, I can do wrong, I can do wickedly, but it's not wrong for me. And that's the world we live in. People say, well, I just don't see it that way. Well, I don't mean anything that you don't see it that way. God sees it the way He sees it, and He's God whether we like it or not. And so as we look about this world, everybody claims to be a Christian. I mean, all the way from the president down to the paupers, everybody claims to be a Christian. But what does their life say? They can say they have fellowship with God. They can claim God's okay with the way they live. But what does God say about it? I mean, we live in a time, and I'll just I'll pick one topic. I could pick 100,000 of them. But I'll pick this topic of sodomy and sodomite marriages. And people claim it's a Christian thing to support sodomy, that that's compassion. Well, they can proclaim that from the hilltops. They can legislate it and cram it down our throats. But it's not going to change how God feels about sodomy. It's still sin. They can say that it's compassionate. They can say it's okay. I mean, they uh, listen, they can get two sodomites and marry them together with a sodomite quote-unquote preacher or priest, and he can stand up and say, well, God really doesn't have a problem with sodomy. And he can stand up and say, well, sodomy's not dealt with in the words of Christ. And by the way, Christ didn't deal with sodomy in the Gospels because they lived in a society where sodomy was not something that they would have encountered on an everyday basis. But old brother Paul sure dealt with it in the book of Romans when he talked about those uh, that lusted contrary to the will and to the design of God. And the Bible says that God hath given them over to a reprobate mind. The Bible deals with sodomy. But they can sit there and claim that God's okay with it. And they can claim Jesus would have been all right with it. They can say they have fellowship with Him. But if they walk in darkness, they lie and do not the truth. So we see that He addresses uh, this darkness that people walk in. And then in verse 7, He says, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. I'm going to try to explain this the best I know how. As we read that passage, it's easy sometimes to sit there and think, well, I could never walk in the light as He is in the light. You see, when we read that, we put the emphasis on three words. One is the word walk. Walk. When we think of walking, we think of something that's an action, and it is an action. But then we look at those two little words, as He. And we think of it as trying to mimic the walk of Christ. And I'll confess to you that I read that and I think, well, boy, I could never walk in the light as He is in the light. I could never do that. But understand that the Bible is not talking... Oh, I like this. This blessed me when I, when I read this. It's not talking about how you walk. It's talking about where you walk where it says walk in the light. It's not talking about how you walk. It's talking about where you walk. When it says as He is in the light, it's not saying as He walks. It's saying as He is in the light. What's being spoken of here is John is talking about 
concerning our sin, walking into the presence of God to face it and deal with it and address it. You see, the policy of the Gnostics was to call sin not sin. John says that's not how the believer deals with sin. We don't deal with it by making excuses for it. We don't deal with it by claiming that we've not sinned. Instead, when we've walked in darkness, we turn, confess it, and walk into the light. I believe it's also to be understood, and I talked about this a moment ago, I don't think when it says God is light that it's speaking of light in the sense of revelation or illumination, but I do believe there's an application here that when we've sinned, when we've done wrong, and we're all going to sin, we're all going to mess up, we don't try to bury it. The Bible says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but he that confesseth and forsaketh his sin. That's what the Bible says. We don't deal with it by ignoring it. I believe that's part of the problem, and, and I'm not trying to armchair parent. I mean, I'm really not. But I believe that's probably part of the problem with, uh, with kids growing up today, is so many parents want to just sweep their sin under the rug instead of ever making them deal with it. And how many times have you heard a parent make excuses for their children? It doesn't matter what they do. You know, they set some kid's hair on fire and they say, oh, they're just, they just thought fire's pretty. You know, what nonsense, what foolishness. No, they're a child and they did wrong. And they need to be shown that they did wrong and that wrong has to be dealt with. You grew up that way. I grew up that way. But all of a sudden, it's no longer the right way to grow up. I believe we're robbing our children when we let them be raised that way. I believe what he's saying here is we have a choice how we're going to walk. And those that have been saved walk in the light. They cannot continue in their sin. And by the way, as you read through the book of John, understand that sin or committing sin or, or sinning is spoken of in two senses. One is sin as far as the immediate action. And two is sin as in to commit sin or to commit yourself to sin. I'm going to try to hurry. He says in verse number 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves... And the truth is not in us. So in other words, he is blowing out of the water this idea that sin is a relative thing or that sin is an archaic thing. Both of those ideals and doctrines permeate society today. People, again, I, you know, I, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but people will say, well, what's wrong for you is not wrong for me. Or they'll say, I just don't see it that way, or I just don't feel that way, or I just don't believe that way. What are they saying? Usually, by the way, when they say that, they're making excuses for the way that they've lived and the things that they've done. They're saying, we have no sin. Or there's the idea that sin is an archaic ideal. Oh, we're past such things as sin and wickedness. Evolution is the basis and foundation of much of this thought today. And by the way, I don't see how we can ever... Isn't it interesting? Oh, I'm going to try to hurry. Isn't it interesting? As you, if you watch... Pro, you ever watch in programs where some animal attacks someone? You ever seen that? Come on, you, you've, if you've seen it, raise your, have you ever seen that? Sure. What do they always say? There's always some... I, I mean, just absolutely... Uh, you can tell they just blew their mind out with drugs in the 60s. Somebody that, uh, you know, and they're a big animal lover, and they always come along, you know what they say? They always say, well, don't blame the shark... The shark's just doing what sharks do. Or don't blame the dog. The dog's just doing what dogs do. And I agree with them. I mean, if you want to go and bear hug a shark, that's your business. But if you lose your head, you've got no one to blame but yourself. And they'll say, well, they're just animals and that's just what they do. Then why is it, why is it that that same society will look down on people that have killed or murdered or committed some sort of illicit sin and try to be punitive, try to, try to pass judgment upon them? If we're just over-evolved monkeys, we're just doing what we do. 
And you know what it comes down to? This idea that sin is an archaic thought. Society is evolving. And hey, there was a time when most of you were growing up, it was a shameful thing to be a sodomite. If a person was a sodomite, they, they were quiet about it. But now today, no, it won't be long, listen to me, it won't be long until they're making excuses and promoting pedophilia. Oh, we've evolved. That's no longer sin. John is writing to this same group of people at a different time in history and saying, you can say that you've not sinned. But if you say that you've not sinned, you've not deceived anybody but yourself. It says, and the truth is not in you. Verse 9, how do we deal with sin then? If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I just want to say a word or two about that. Uh, We know that this is the way we address sin, is by going into the presence of God and confessing it. But I would like to point out what this verse does not say, because I believe that's important. It does not say if we pray, our sins are forgiven. It does not say if we do better, our sins are forgiven. It does not say if we try to live in a different way, our sins are forgiven. It does not say if we go to church, our sins are forgiven. It does not say if we help somebody, our sins are forgiven. You can do all those things and it won't mean that your sins will be forgiven. What does it say? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It takes confession Now, not confession in a little old phone booth in the back of some dusty church with somebody that believes they're a man of God listening to you. Not confession in the ears of another human being. The Bible never commands us to confess our sins to each other. The Bible commands us to confess our faults one to another, but never tells us to confess our sins to each other. No, not to a priest, but to confess them to God. We have a tendency, and I'm going to confess something to you, not because it's sin and I need to, but... I'm just going to tell you something. When I was growing up, a lot of times when I did something wrong, and I knew Dad was going to be mad, and we grew up in the kind of household where if Mom whipped you, you know, it was bearable. But you didn't want Dad to whip you, amen? He, I mean, he never beat us or anything. I'm not saying that. Don't, don't think the wrong thing. But I'm just saying that was the kind of... Our, we lived in a household that was a, that was a I'm going to tell your father when he gets home household. That was the world that we lived in. And we feared... Uh, and by the way, kids ought to fear their daddies. They ought to fear their daddies. Now, not being terrified of them. Not being a, a, a daddy should not live in such a way that when he comes through the door, the kids just scatter because they're afraid he's going to smack them around in some kind of drunken rest. That's not what I'm saying. But kids ought to fear their, their father with a godly fear. That, that's right and that's biblical. We define our perceptions of God the Father based on our earthly father. A lot of people have no respect for God the Father because they have no respect for their earthly fathers. But whenever uh, we would come in, you know, Mom would warn... And I think part of it was the psychological terror that was inflicted on us when she told us Dad was going to give us a whipping. And we had to wait like six hours till he got home. You know, it was just awful. We'd waste away. We'd, We'd lose weight. I don't even know how it happened. Just worrying over it. And when Dad would come through the door, a lot of times, you know, I mean, I'm smart. Kids are smart, you know. And I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll go up and I'll hug him. And I'll say, Daddy, welcome home. And I'll be sweet to him. But see, Dad is smart enough that he knew I never did that. So when I did that, he'd almost whip me without even finding out what I'd done wrong. Because he knew. You know, we try to do that with God. We sin and we do wrong. We don't want to confess it. We want to ignore it. 
And so we try to go about with our relationship with God. John says that's not how it works. You must confess your sin. In verse number 10, if we say that we have not sinned, and he, he emphasizes the, the foundational truth that we're all sinners and we all commit sin, when he says it again, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him, who? God. We make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. This is what John's saying. John's saying you have a choice who you want to believe. You can either believe God, and that makes your flesh a liar, or you can believe your flesh, and that makes God a liar. You can either believe God, that your flesh is a liar, and His Word can be in you, that truth, or you can believe your flesh, that God is a liar, and His Word is not in you. But John says you can't have it both ways. Either you're a sinner and you need God's salvation, or you don't need God at all because you believe He's an illusion and a lie. He gives us two other verses, and I'll mention these in close. He says in verse number 1 of chapter 2, My little children, that, man, that's beautiful language. That, that literally means born ones. I don't believe he's talking about an age frame. I don't, th- I don't think he's saying this portion is for the, for the kitty crowd. I believe what he's saying here is those that have been born into the family of God. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Let me say that it is not God's will when we sin. It's not God's will. That doesn't mean we're not going to sin. There's going to be times we're all going to fail, we're all going to mess up. But I think sometimes we try to use 1 John 1, 9 like the kitchen sink. And we go out and we sin and we do wrong. We say, that's okay, I'll just run to 1 John 1, 9. And I'll confess it and God will forgive me. You do that and listen, it will corrupt your walk with Christ. The reason we have that mentality is because of how little we value the communion and fellowship we have with God. That's why we think that. We don't know what we're missing when we live backslidden. If we valued that fellowship more, we wouldn't want to live that way. And that fellowship's a fragile thing. I mean, listen, our relationship, though it bear all the weight of a thousand worlds, cannot be broken. But our fellowship, it doesn't take much to break that with God. Just a sin, just, just something small, something insignificant that we do wrong. And our fellowship with Him, our communion with Him can be severed. Thankfully, it can be restored just that quickly too. Look what he says. These things write unto you that you sin not. This blessed me. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's three things I want to point out to you about that. One is the use of the word Father. Now, sometimes we think of having an advocate with God, but that's not what it says. The Bible teaches we have a high priest with God. You say, why is that important? Because when we approach Him and He is as God, when we're coming as a sinner, we can make no approach to God without a high priest to intercede for us, without someone to go before God for us. But after we've been saved, our relationship changes. Now He's not a cold and distant God. He's our Father. That's how sin's dealt with in this book. He's our Father. And you know what blesses me? is that even though we've sinned, it still calls Him our Father. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It doesn't change our relationship with Him when we sin. We could do something as black as the charred walls of hell, and He'd still be our Father if we'd been born again. I mean, we could do something so treacherous that the devil himself wouldn't speak of it. 
But if we've been born again, He'll still be our Father. It never changes. But then I want you also to notice this. I I, I gave you some hard truth a second ago with that idea of confession. Not if we pray, if we go to church, if we do this, if we do that, but if we confess. But I want you to notice what the action is that triggers the advocacy of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren? The book of Revelation. That he standeth night and day and accuseth the brethren. When you sin or when I sin, the devil immediately wants to go before the presence of God and say, look what your child has done. Our sin triggers that. But there's something else that our sin triggers. It doesn't say if we sin and then pray, we have an advocate with the Father. It doesn't say if we sin and then commit to do better. If we sin and then go to church. It just says if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The same way that when we sin, Satan immediately rises to his feet and goes to accuse us when we sin the Son of God. Just as surely, just as swiftly, begins to go and plead our case before God the Father. Isn't it a beautiful truth that He's interceding, He's advocating for us before we ever even realize we've done something wrong? That's how much God loves us. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Say, so why did John say Jesus Christ? The righteous. Well, here's why. Because in verse number 2, he says, and he is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, when we've sinned, when we've done wrong, Christ immediately goes to our defense and begins to say to the Father, you can't condemn him. Let me paint a picture for you, a word picture, a mind picture. You sin, you do something wrong. And immediately Satan rises up and says, did you see what they did? Did you see what they did? But then all of a sudden, here appears the Son of God that says, wait a minute. Lord, you can't judge them for that. You can't go and condemn them for that. Why? Because I, the righteous, am the propitiation for their sins. I've dealt with that sin on Calvary. You know, He died for our sins, not just just past and not just present, but future. When we sin, Christ can stand up and say, you can't condemn Him for that. I already paid for it. And then we have... The beautiful, it's a closing, it's a conclusion, but it's an invitation to the gospel message where he says, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Not just an elite group of intellectual superiors. Not just this group that claims to have an advanced knowledge. John says, no. No, this Jesus Christ, the one that I know, the one that's the Son of God, the one that died for our sins, the one that I saw. You remember who was at the cross? There was a group of women gathered and John. John says, I know he's the propitiation because I saw him die for my sins. I saw him on the cross. This Jesus Christ, he's the same from the beginning. And that gospel's the same that you heard in the beginning. And it's not changed and it doesn't need to change. And He died for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world.